0: It's the weekend, and this is your DSR Daily Bonus Brief. I'm Grant Haver. Today, I'm joined by James Elder, spokesperson for UNICEF. James, thanks for joining us.
1: Grant, hi there.
0: You are currently on the ground in Somalia where there have been reports of widespread food insecurity. What's your assessment of the situation?
1: It's terrifying, Grant. And, you know, talk to mothers who who have buried children on the way as they've tried to get to an area with help, meet mothers in camps who stay in a makeshift tent with sort of small mounds next to their tent where they have buried their little ones. This is on the back of a drought that's gone on and on and on, the worst drought in 40 years, on the back of a climate crisis. You know, these people had livestock, cattle, goats, crops. This was their income. This was their livelihood. you know. I guess what they call it, that's why they call it livestock. It's their stocks. But it's not like a dipping Tesla or Apple share. They've just crashed. They've just gone to zero. So they lost everything. And after struggling and pushing through, they get to a point where they've got nothing and they've got to move to get water. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people going through this.
0: And this has been compared to a drought that happened in Somalia about 10 years ago. How much worse is it than it was previously?
1: It's insane to think it can be worse. Hey, I mean, that's the drought of 10 years ago killed a quarter of a million people. Half of those were children. We won't know the extent. It's so difficult to, you know, get clear, perfect indication, both because things happen fast. One disease outbreak will be utterly lethal. When children are really badly malnourished, Grant, that what tends to kill them is disease outbreaks and diarrhea malaria measles they're 10 times more likely to die when they're malnourished from those things than a, than a healthier child so we won't know for sure and of course then there's insecurity as well but certainly when I talk to experts and by that I mean nutritionists or famine experts or pastoralists they all say it's worse than 2011 and it's getting worse
0: so what's UNICEF been doing to help combat this crisis?
1: Our efforts are pretty relentless. I mean, if I look, the two main areas that I keep pointing to are water and then nutritional support. And nutritional support is this thing called ready-to-use therapeutic food. It's a high-energy micronutrient paste, wonder food. So through that and training health staff and you know, getting health facilities in working order, then we've, we've treated about 300,000 children, little boys and girls this year for severe acute malnutrition, the sort that is likely to kill a child. And just in the last few months, half a million people with clean water. These are game changers. These are what will, what will keep people alive, which is the name of the game now because these communities have done everything they possibly can, their generosity to one another, both in terms of where they live and when they're on the move, and they're on the move for like 200 miles, is outstanding, but they get to a point where they just need support. That's what an organisation like UNICEF is doing because we have so many local partners. We have that ability with our security to search out and seek malnourished kids, but it's difficult because it's not just here. It's Ethiopia, it's Kenya, Pakistan has got climate-induced flooding, Ukraine is man-made by Russia's invasion, so it's difficult times, but to a Somali child, they don't have a carbon footprint. Much less understand why Russia's invaded Ukraine and food prices are spiking.
0: Tell us more about this climate crisis and what the issues it's causing for UNICEF and the work you guys do. It's the
1: threats we were always told by by science that this was going to hit the most vulnerable harder and harder as we got more frequent and severe storms and floods and fires, and we are seeing that. We're seeing that in your own country in the united states my country australia and everywhere in between i think we see it most starkly in some of those poorer nations developing nations because they don't have the same social safety nets they don't have the same infrastructure so you know these massive a massive flood or drought somewhere rather than have the state be able to come in with huge support like we saw in countries during a pandemic that huge fiscal support that's not possible so this is the first stage as a scientist told me you know this is a Somalia and this area may be our first climate induced famine but he said it's not the last you know this climate crisis will push many many millions to the brink you know that he said now it's about the effects of excesses from parts of the world and the, the standard of living on the planet's poorest children are paying for those but it won't just be these poorer nations we will have these crises on our doorstep with much much more frequency for for your children and my children much less if we go a generation further down the, the warnings are pretty gloomy but the response is quite straightforward you know the response is governments and big business to live up to their promises it seems straightforward and yet i would say people had the same conversation 10 years ago
0: unfortunately as much as i hope that countries and corporations do live up to their promises and help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The climate has changed. These droughts are going to become more of a problem. What can groups like UNICEF and others do to help mitigate this disaster and make sure that this drought might be a problem in Somalia, but the next one won't be even twice as bad or three times as bad?
1: Yeah, great question, Grant. Look, Huge amount of our work is on exactly that. We would call it resilience, which is everything from let's look at water instead of just always having to truck water and so on and generators pumping boreholes. It's about using solar panels, it's about using satellites to look for deep underground water and then to be to drilling for that. It's about, you know, in education using the gig economy, getting people connected and, and not necessarily having to have. Classrooms absolutely everywhere, but, but getting more and more children online and getting them in a connected world and therefore boosting that education as the population grows. Economists will tell us if we can educate that population, then you start to take advantage of your demographics. And the flip side, if you don't, then you get all the attendant risks with security and poverty and everything else. So there's a huge amount we are doing around those resilience in those sectors. But at the same time, if we take exactly your question, Grant, that that politicians and business do not act on their promises, then it would not be truthful to say that we can't ensure the next droughts are not more severe. They will be more severe. We will just see a domino effect of these things. And of course, people will have less and less room to move, less and less of a safety net, never able to recover from a crisis before. So within that, you see... Mass migration, insecurity, and all those threats to um, health and safety, security, and more hunger, more storms, more floods, more fires. It's very gloomy, but you know, action can, can work to fix it. As a non-political organization, UNICEF lobbies, but by and large, Grant, we just work on resilience, building up, trying to build a base for those communities. Cash to communities is big. The poor people know exactly what to do with money. But they do live in areas that are that are really prone to these first stages of this climate crisis.
0: Unfortunately, as as you mentioned, the climate crisis is just one of the crises facing a lot of the countries that you you name checked earlier. Somalia, Ethiopia, Pakistan are all facing governance challenges, to say the least. How does UNICEF work in a place where the government is not always either supportive or even capable of helping you reach children and reach the malnutrition?
1: Yeah, we're very lucky like that because we've been around for so long, since the end of World War II, and because we're almost in every country on the planet. Our mandate is one that, on one hand, we do sit with governments and work on the big things, the curriculums, the policies, the child rights and so on and on the other hand we are frontline workers so when it comes to as you say countries with governance challenges or big security problems like like Somalia then we have that ability that we have local networks so in Somalia we work so much with local communities they are what we call our implementing partners they are the ones who we are working with to truck water to do supply lines to make sure our nutritional foods get to places to train teachers to build hospitals. So ideally, we're always working with a government because the last thing you want to do is set up a parallel structure. But in situations where, I mean, Somalia is the peak, but where the governance challenges are so great and the insecurity is so great, we've worked in those difficult environments. So we have links to a community who always, as you know, communities know what they need. So they're also a very good place to work.
0: We've mentioned climate change and how that's impacted nutrition. We touched a little bit on the war in Ukraine and how that spiked food prices around the world, inflation, COVID. What are the concerns that you have going forward outside of those things? Are there other issues that we're missing that will hurt the poor and the children first?
1: One, I would point to globally, because of course, UNICEF is an organization that works for all children, Everywhere, of course, with a focus on the most most vulnerable, but certainly I think something that is more and more on our radar is just mental health. The whole world watched as that impact on the youngest generation through COVID and children being at home and missing out on socialisation and particularly being on screen so frequently. Parents, that constant challenge to get children off screens. Suddenly their entire school day was on screens. So I think the evidence, well, I know the evidence has become increasingly clear that there is so much good that can be taken out of connectivity. Like I talk about connecting children in remote parts of the world to information is potentially miraculous. But at the same time, a lot of the social media, a lot of the ways it is set up in terms of algorithms that will draw children back and back, we see Increasingly rising rates of anxiety among children, depression among children. And here I talk about from Sweden to the United States, New Zealand, rich countries. So we are really concerned about the mental health of children because both their exposure on those platforms and the way those platforms are designed to keep them there and almost boost insecurities. But of course, also those platforms do offer access to news. Now, that can be a good thing if it's genuinely news and not disinformation. But at the same time, these children are more connected than ever before, which means they are connected to understanding what a war in Europe looks like. They're well aware of a climate crisis that is absolutely going to affect their generation and yet their generation's voices are not being heard. The young people I speak to, and I speak to a lot, that is something that concerns them enormously when they hear these doomsdays. And I've been pretty gloomy in my appraisals of where we are in the climate. If you're a young person, 12, 13, 20 years old, then that weighs very, very heavily. And on top of so many other issues, their future, the economy, inflation, all these things that they have a sense of, then we worry very much about the mental health of, of a generation coming through and whether will they have what every parent simply hopes is that the you know children coming up have a better life than their parents. That is becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult from an empirical point of view.
0: Before we go, what can countries like the U.S. be doing to help UNICEF and ensure a brighter future for our children? The
1: United States government is a really significant donor. There's no doubt on that front. And, and I don't have a clear action on that, except that, you know, every citizen's voice and vote makes a, makes a difference on, on governments who are generous outside their borders. And right now, for example, UNICEF has seen that through the U.S. government with the nutrition support that I see on the ground here to those boys and girls but also you know half of UNICEF's money we raise there is no magic pot for UNICEF unfortunately grant it's, it's it all comes from generosity so more than half is raised through mums and dads through people who get on a site like unicefusa.org have a look around see you know what resonates with them that kind of generosity makes a difference that kind of generosity goes into those you know micronutrient wonder food that goes into the you know, the, t- the stomach of a, of a little malnourished boy or girl, that's life-changing. And we're very, very grateful for that.
0: I know that I'll be making a donation following this uh, podcast to make sure you can continue your good work. And I hope our listeners do too. Thanks so much for your time. That's all the time we have for today. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at podcasts at the DSRnetwork.com. Every week before these bonus briefs, we ask you about the questions you have in our member Slack channel, so join us there to be a part of that discussion. Thanks to your membership for making conversations like this possible. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday.